Bienvenidos, marhaban, and welcome to the Never Never Podcast, Exploring the Dresden Files by Jim Butcher. I'm your host, Christine. I'll be releasing multi-chapter analysis episodes for each book, along with special bonus episodes between books on no particular schedule. Here we discuss the series' world-building, overarching plot, foreshadowing, character intros, as well as any meta-aspects, mythology, callbacks to other books, and theory. The Never Never podcast may include spoilers from all sources. The Dresden Files features mature themes, including sexuality and violence. I'm also terrible at watching my language, so the Never Never podcast is intended for mature audiences, despite having playful, if not childish, tendencies. My peeps, I am so happy to be back at it. I decided back in August that I was going to go back to school, and for me, it has been a minute. I needed to relearn study time management, and now that I know how much time I need, it shouldn't be three months between episodes anymore. In the meantime, we're up to 800 downloads. Also, someone left me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I couldn't find a way to see who left it, but whoever you are, thank you so much. It really helps the podcast to be seen by more people, and I appreciate it more than you could know. But enough pleasantries. You're here for Dresden. And now, the long-awaited. Episode 14, All Hell Broke Loose. Recorded December 2nd, 2021. Covering Full Moon, Book 2, Chapters 16 through 19. In this episode, Harry faces the most terrifying and horrific big bad of his life thus far. We've got beautiful naked woman for misdirection, carnage, heroism, thaumaturgy, unwavering friendship, fury, and sorrow. So, let's draw our circle and step through the way to the never-never. Chapter 16. Susan and Boobs to the Rescue Harry flees the park and arrives at the nearest gas station. He waits for over an hour, but neither Tara nor McFinn shows. Tired, cold, and injured, Harry uses the payphone and calls Susan. Quote, Harry? She said disbelievingly. My God, where are you? The police are looking for you. They keep calling here. Something about a murder. Misunderstanding, I said, and leaned against the wall. The pain was getting worse as chills soaked in and I started to shiver. You sound terrible, Susan said. Are you all right? Can you help me? There was a pause on the other end of the line. I don't know, Harry. I don't know what's going on. I don't want to get into any trouble. I could explain it, I offered, struggling to keep my words clear through the pain. But it's sort of a long story. I dropped subtle emphasis on that last word. Sometimes it scares me how easy it is to get people to do what you want them to do if you know something about them. Unquote. Susan's care for Harry is evident here. You can tell from her language that in the beginning of that call, Susan is not thinking about herself. The subject of most of her sentences is you, referring to Harry, not I, referring to herself. The couple that aren't are about the police looking for him, and she doesn't think he did it. She never asks, and when Harry addresses it as a misunderstanding, she doesn't even respond to the meager explanation, asking again 
how he is. Then he asks for her help, and all of a sudden, the mood changes. Now here we will have no judgment of Susan, because aiding and abetting a wanted murder suspect is a serious thing, and she responds accordingly. Now all of her statements are I statements. Not only that, but they are I don't statements. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't want to get into any trouble. She really knows she shouldn't help him here, but her need for the scoop overtakes her, as Harry knows it will, and he convinces her to help him. I get that there's no other way he is going to effectively stop McFinn from becoming a ravening murderer. He's in an impossible situation and puts Susan in an impossible situation so he can get out of it. It is selfish and reckless with her well-being and manipulative as heck. But then Susan says that she would have helped him anyway and agrees to come pick Harry up. Harry bemoans his decision to ask Susan for help. He gets stuck in his chivalric nonsense and says that it makes him feel weak to get help from a woman. Oh, I had about enough of that. Harry thinks about his trying to influence her decision with a lame trick like preying on her passion for her job. He says it makes him feel cheap, and I say, good, every part of that move is cheap. But Harry isn't a saint, and we need the story to move forward. While Harry is waiting for Susan, brooding up against a wall, Tara shows up, fully nude, for clothes don't shift with the werewolf. She instructs him to give her his coat, which I find funny. She doesn't ask, and she isn't rude. Just give me the coat. He does and takes a moment to lament the loss of her nakedness. Now covered up and poorly by Harry's enormous coat, she explains that she slipped away, but McFinn was caught by the feds. She says that, quote, the one called Murphy, unquote, had more people than the FBI team of four, and so McFinn wound up with Murphy and her people. Oh no. She'll take him to the downtown lockup. Inconveniently on the same floor as special investigations... Harry starts to plan, and Tara tries to stop him. You can't stop him now. You cannot try to stop it without getting arrested and made completely useless to the mission. He will turn, and all the police people will die. But Harry's wheels are turning. He can get himself in, but he needs something from back at his apartment. Again, Tara is doom and gloom. Quote, The police will be watching it, Tara said. They will be waiting for you there, and in any case, we have no car and no money. How will you reach Chicago by moonrise? There is nothing more to be done, wizard. Unquote. Cue Susan driving up. Without explanation, Tara and Harry both hop in her car. To Susan's credit, her first reaction is of care for Harry's well-being. He says that he's been shot, and when she asks if it hurts, Jim throws out my new least favorite line— Tara asks Harry, quote, is this female always so stupid, unquote. The two women then glare at each other. That he wrote such a sexist line, flippantly, is bad enough, but to put it in the mouth of a strong female character against another strong female character? Man, why would she even say something like that? The catty reaction makes me think it's some expression of jealousy, but why would Tara be possessive of Harry? The whole exchange makes no sense to me. Harry promises answers if she'll follow these special instructions for, hopefully, getting into his apartment. Susan drives. Harry forces himself to stay awake and explain what has been happening the last couple of days, leaving out the White Council classified stuff. 
Here, he has Susan act in character in a way I appreciate. Jim has her asking thoughtful questions. Being a reporter is such a part of who Susan is that even in these crazy situations that Harry has put her in, this instinct to dig into the meat of it shines through. This is Jim. Most of his writing is good, like this, but then we get stuff like the stupid female comment and Jim loses audience. I choose to forgive him ultimately, but reserve the right to complain when it happens. That's how I enjoy these books. Mostly caught up, Susan asks some clarifying questions intended to let the reader know just how fucked Harry is. No, he can't count on Murphy. No, the rain clouds covering the moon won't keep McFinn from changing. When they get to Harry's apartment, they do not stop, but roll by at a sedate speed. Indeed, it is being watched by two cops in an unmarked car. Susan pulls around the corner and parks. There's no other way to get into the apartment than by the front door, so they will need a distraction. Tara volunteers and is bid to avoid violence. Again, Harry wonders if Tara is the killer, and again, his reasoning seems thin to me. I wish he would stop mistrusting her. I'm sure she's weird and there's something off about her and he doesn't know what, but so far her actions seem to be perfectly in line with the motivations she's expressed. Tara strips off Harry's duster and stands nude in the rain. She asks if he likes to look at her, and Susan cows Harry into looking decidedly anywhere but at Tara. Okay, I suppose Susan is not interested in being part of a throuple. Her reminder to Harry of his intimate connection is fine and well, but I don't think that Tara was coming on to Harry. I think that she was honestly asking him how effective her plan would be, even though she is amused by how uncomfortable Harry becomes by her nudity. Tara goes through the darkness to the pool of light beneath a street lamp in front of the cops and begins to dance. Harry successfully sneaks into the apartment, after tripping slightly on the curb while watching her as well. Focus, Harry. Once in the apartment, Harry gears up with a pair of coveralls, name tag on the breast, two potions he made earlier, a baseball cap, first aid kit, a roll of duct tape, chalk, seven smooth stones, clean clothes, and a huge bottle of Tylenol, all zipped into a backpack. On his way out, he grabs his wizard staff and starts back to Susan's car. Tara is still consuming the policeman's attention with her nakedness. Susan picks up Harry and then Tara around the block. Everyone's safely out of the cop's notice. Tara muses that, quote, Of course it worked, Tara said. Men are foolish. They will stare at anything female and naked, unquote. Susan agrees, and then they're off to special investigations. I could write an essay about that line alone, but here I will only say two things. First, there are plenty who are, by choice or by nature, nonplussed by such sights. But in my experience, many straight men are indeed enraptured by naked women, especially out of context, like in a public streetlight in the rain. To the cops' credit, they were mostly trying to contain the strange situation. Second, there is nothing wrong with appreciating the female form within respectful boundaries. Most minds are rife with lustful thoughts, and there's nothing shameful about that. Rant over. Harry dresses in the coveralls and the cap, pulling it down to partly cover his face, and downs the blending potion. He puts his staff inside a wheelie mop bucket. The disguise was measly, but the potion should cover the difference. When the potion starts to work, his vision goes to a sort of old movie black and white thing, letting him know when people are noticing him, 
by allowing Harry to see their color to varying degrees, depending on their level of attention. Such a cool detail. Harry goes into the station house and tries to be as unassuming as possible, keeping his head down, and walks in. And it works. The few police officers he passes barely notice him, if at all. Harry reflects, quote, Now all I had to do was find McFinn, trick my way into seeing him, and save Murphy and all the other police from the monster McFinn would become, before they arrested me for trying to do it. Unquote. In case we forgot just how fucked Harry is. Chapter 17. Custodial Deception Goes Awry Without knowing what time moon rises tonight, and the cloud cover making it impossible to tell if the sun was down yet, Harry is desperate to get to McFinn, and somehow get a circle up around him before he turns. Up the stairs he goes, in his custodial disguise, to holding on the fifth floor next to special investigation, as fast as he dares. He muses about how he's going to use the stones and chalk to create the greater circle. No mean feat, but possible for Harry in his power and understanding of magic. But he needs to focus. First, he needs to get past S.I. Murphy is giving Carmichael shit for losing Harry. Does he have to walk into the station before you can find him? She says. A good snicker for us. But they're inside the office, and they don't see him pass. Holding is a secure area. Inside the bars is a waiting room and a bulletproof room for buzzing people in with surveillance cameras for the hallway beyond and all of its cells. Between the two is a heavy steel door. Inside the room is a jailer, bored and reading a magazine. Harry sees him in black and white, drained of all color and all notice of Harry's presence. It takes some rapping on the bars to get the jailer's notice, but eventually he lets Harry in. Man, that took a minute. Wouldn't it be ironic if the blending potion that allowed him to sneak in also made it impossible for people to notice him? Wouldn't it, though? The jailer wonders why the janitor is here early, but Harry, for once, manages to lie successfully. He scribbles a nondescript signature and asks about any trouble tonight. The jailer says some rich guy was shouting for a while, but has stopped, probably coming down from the drugs. But we know there are no drugs. Harry scans the bank of monitors until he finds the one with a temporary label reading, McFinn. The cell was empty. Oh, shit. McFinn has changed and broken out of his cell. Harry watches helplessly as McFinn rampages from one cell to the next, reducing the other prisoners to gibbering in terror, and then to nothing but blood and meat. Fear swells up, choking and chilling his guts. What the hell is Harry even doing here with that thing? He wanted to run, but Harry couldn't let this go on. He pointed and shouted, getting as close to the monitors as possible to put the jailer's attention on the horror unfolding on the screens. But irony of ironies, the potion blended Harry's words into something bland and boring. Plus, Harry's wizard aura is fritzing the monitors, and the guard sees only the static and not the image of a prisoner dying while the monitor flickers back and forth. Ugh, what's wrong with these things now? Oh well, let me buzz you in. Hum. Click. Screams. Prisoners, unable to see and only to hear the carnage, terrified it will come for them next. Screams, high and terrible, men dying in horror. Then a snarl that could only have come from a huge creature. The guard fumbles for his gun and goes to investigate, 
drawing the monster toward the open door. Harry shoulder-checks the door on top of the creature's paw, and together Harry and the jailer try to keep it from coming open, but to no avail. The beast smashes through, knocking everyone back. The former McFinn monster is revealed in all its horror. Huge, black fur slick with blood, magical aura blaring against Harry's wizard senses. Is to wolf like a velociraptor is to a bird, Jim says. Though I'm sure he meant Deinonychus, as velociraptors are the size of turkeys. Not like they were pictured in Jurassic Park. Those were big, like Deinonychus. His gaze slips over Harry's current boring appearance, his attention falling on the jailer, who freaks out and empties his gun clip in the beast's face at nearly point-blank range. Man, does that make the creature mad. The jailer's blood explodes up onto the bulletproof glass and ceiling of the guard station. Harry wants to rabbit, hole up in the cell block behind the door, ward it, and survive until morning. But instead, he calls his staff to him and shuts himself out of the cell block, hopefully giving the remaining prisoners a chance. But this draws the loop guru's attention, and suddenly the creature sees Harry, the color washing into Harry's vision as the potion just breaks down under the beast's scrutiny. Harry barely escapes past the outer bars, bent open with a forzare, saved by the blood making the creature's paws too slick to purchase on the floor. As the beast finally scrabbles enough blood off its paws to rip open the bars and bound toward Harry, Harry casts again, creating a blast of air that stops the creature like a wall, while blasting Harry back down the hallway toward special investigations. Equal and opposite reactions. Murphy looks down at Harry and up at the loop guru, stands between them, and points her gun at the monster. Fat lot of good that it'll do. Chapter 18. The police think they can win. Without even thinking, Harry tries to use his magic to, quote, protect Murphy and to hell with the consequences, unquote. I find this another indicator of Harry's character. He gets into lots of trouble over the years because of his fuck-the-cost attitude. I seem to remember in Changes, Book 12, he offers to roast marshmallows as the world burns. Also, he never says he does any of this in order to defend himself. In that moment, he's not concerned for himself at all, and only wants to protect another. It's also worthy to note that this protection does not extend to the jailer. It's not explicitly said whether the inconsistency has to do with the fact that the jailer was a stranger, or if it's because he was not a damsel. Probably a bit of both. Regardless, he fails, unable to even stand. Good thing Murphy came loaded for werewolf. She had melted down her heirloom silver earrings into a few twenty-two caliber rounds with the equipment she uses to make her own bullets for competition shooting. And as the bullets struck the loop guru, one by one they tore into his body, drawing blood. One by one they tore into its body, drawing blood and eliciting surprise at the fact that they were slowing him down, and even made him stumble and roll through a wall into an adjacent room. Too bad Murphy still wants to arrest Harry. As she explains about her Aunt Edna's earrings and the silver rounds, she reads Harry his rights. With the beast in a records room full of file cabinets and no people, Murphy begins to move personnel around. You and you, here. You four, guard the door. She goes to cuff Harry and sees the last pair still dangling from his wrists. Quote, Christ, Dresden, she added in a mutter. What is it with you and my handcuffs? Unquote. 
Harry takes inventory of his foot, scored by the loop guru as he escaped through the outer bars of the jail a moment ago. There is a blood in his mouth from biting his tongue. His back is mostly numb, and his shoulder hurts so bad he can barely stand. Carmichael gives Harry to a rookie Rudolph. Harry, punch drunk and laughing helplessly, Rudy horrified at what happened to the jailer. Carmichael shakes him, reminds him that the beast is still there, and to do as he's told. Carmichael says something interesting when Rudolph asks about Harry. Quote, who is this guy anyway? Carmichael glared at me. He's the guy who knows. If he comes to and says something, listen to him. Unquote. So despite all of Carmichael's skepticism and hemming and hawing over Harry's authenticity, and despite the way he saw Harry on a perp walk back at McFinn's place, Murphy's partner still has reason to trust Harry's wisdom. Now, why would he do that unless, fair listeners, he saw the file that Harry prepared for Murphy on the werewolf threat? It's never said that he does, but I think that seeing those predictions come true were the only way he'd have said such a thing given all that had transpired. And then Carmichael is off, riot gun in hand, to move in on the creature. Harry patters behind Rudolph to S.I., giggling at his bloody sock prints. But now something rational and elusive is tugging on the skirt of his brain. Finally, the terror in Rudolph is enough to bring Harry back from his silly place. Cold water over his head and then down his throat keeps the giggles at bay. Harry remembers that Murphy made the big bad bleed and realizes he can get him. Rudolph weakly protests that Harry is still sort of under arrest. Harry has no time for that. He goes further into SI towards Murphy's office to regain his gear that was confiscated when Murphy arrested him. Now fully equipped, he's got his blasting rod, his shield bracelet, his pentacle amulet, his gun, and his damn chalk. He fries Karen's computer, oops, and tells Rudolph, you didn't see that. His hysteria bubbling up occasionally, Harry procures a stuffy from Carmichael's desk. A Snoopy doll, of all things. Then we get the great end of chapter line, quote, and then all hell broke loose, unquote. Chapter 19, The Peanuts Gallery. A scream. The roar of gunfire and bullets come tearing through the walls. Harry thinks again that he should run, prepare, come back fresh and ready tomorrow. Tomorrow he could win. Quote, but I've never been known for my rational snap judgment, unquote. Time for Harry to burn things. Then we get this amazing description, quote, I gripped the blasting rod and started sucking in all the power I could reach, scooping up my recent terror, reaching down into the giggling madness, scraping up all the courage I had left, and pouring it into the kettle with everything else. The power came rushing into me, purity of emotion, complex energies of will, and raw hard-headedness, all combining into a field, an aura of tingling, invisible energy that I could feel enveloping my skin. Shivers ran over me, overriding the pain of my injuries, the ecstasy of power gathering my sensations into its heady embrace. I was pumped. I was charged. I was more than human. And God help anyone who got in my way, because he would need it. Unquote. The way Jim describes what it's like for Harry to wield magic is sexual. Using phrases like tingling, enveloping my skin, shivers ran over me, heady embrace, 
He even says explicitly, the ecstasy of power. Equating magic with such a strong, pervasive instinct as sex makes it easy to see how alluring using magic is. Imagining the powerful sensations and the control of reality, in the easy-bake oven nature of dark magic, one can relate with how tempting it could be to be drawn into warlock territory despite the evil of it. Harry is locked and loaded, so to speak. Time to jam. Fuego. The wall in front of him incinerates, and he walks out into the hall. It is horror. Officers are dragging a headless body away from the fighting. More guns fire down the way, and another man goes down in a splash of blood. Two flee toward Harry, and the loop guru comes barreling after them, preparing each for the ground with a simple swipe of its claws. Harry steps between it and the two attempting to save their decapitated compatriot. Harry and the McFinn monster face each other down and are about to engage when Murphy shoots the hulking thing again. One, two, three. And then it's after her. Oh, hell no. Harry runs after them as she disappears under the loop guru's bulk, but Carmichael gets there first. His gut has already been ripped open, leaving everything but his food-stained tie a mess of blood. But with a dying man's determination, he jumps on the beast's back and wedges his ruined riot gun into the beast's jaws, like a boss. The loop guru backslams Carmichael, who crunches and dies instantly. Murphy takes her silver-loaded gun, puts it under the loop guru's chin, and pulls the trigger again and again. But her special rounds are now gone. Shit. On Harry's prompting, Murphy ducks into the new drywall hole into the records room, as the monster shears through the riot gun and snaps, missing her. She's clear. Fuego! A hammer made of crimson lightning slams into it and throws it through the air past the wounded and the dead, through the door into holding, through the door to the cells, and out the brick wall on the other side and into the night. Oh, and across the street, through a condemned building series of walls and onto the street the next block over. Through the destruction, Harry hears the loop guru howl. Jesus, that thing is tough. Murphy's arm is broken, but Harry's work is still not done. He collects a paper cone cup and the Snoopy doll from Rudolph, and producing his chalk, makes with the thaumaturgy. He draws a circle, sets the doll in the middle with the Lucaroo's blood over the dog's eyes, mouth, ears, and nose, but not the head, shoulders, knees, and toes, knees, and toes, and send the confounding senses spell out into the world to follow the beast for the rest of the night. This is great. Quote, I began to chant nonsense syllables in a low musical refrain, focusing the energy I would need inside the circle I had closed around me. It wasn't until later that I would realize that I was babbling a chant of Ubriacha Ubrius Ubrium to the Peanuts theme music. Unquote. Murphy is crying over Carmichael, cradling her arm, and doesn't notice Harry making a surreptitious exit. In all the chaos, no one tries to stop him. Once outside, Susan finds Harry and reassuringly helps him to her car. And finally, Harry rests. Harry has never been so drained, and all with a gunshot wound. Still, he manages to disable the loop guru, though not before a bloodbath such as Harry has never seen. Murphy, prepared though she was, having followed Harry's report, is devastated to lose her partner, who dies trying to save her. Though to be fair, Carmichael would have died from his wounds anyway, so he chooses to go out in a blaze of heroism. R.I.P. Carmichael. 
and Susan is unwavering in her support of Harry, despite her misgivings, the kind of friend any of us would be lucky to have. Not a ton of discussion in the amazing action. I tried to balance it out with a bit of analysis in the first half, as there was much more talking. Still, it's fun to relive the madness Jim provides in the second half of that chunk of chapters. And that's it. Arigato. Dankeschön. And thank you all kindly for listening. I've been your host, Christine. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for providing the music for this episode. Links below. Thank you to my supporters, without whom this project would not be possible. You know who you are. Thank you to my inspirations, those literary podcast giants on whose mighty shoulders I attempt to balance. And thanks to Jim Butcher for creating such a thrilling and insightful series, up about which I simply cannot shut. The Never Never Podcast is available on your favorite podcatcher. If you enjoyed this episode, please help the podcast grow for free. Take 30 seconds or less and share, like, comment, subscribe, write a review on iTunes, or send me your feedback. Email me at theneverneverpodcast at gmail.com or chat with me on Twitter at neverneverpod. You have my consent to flirt with my algorithms and to spank all the buttons. My peeps love everyone as though they were you. Take care. Do 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 do